0: She loves de Kooning's work, but I ran into her in Paris when we had the Salinger sale and view there. And she said, there's something I have to see. It's this de Kooning collage. It's been my obsession. I have a postcard of it, I have a card of it in my studio. And originally the talk was to be about the three that she asked for it to be included. And so everybody agreed. And in fact, it really was amazing for her to talk about that work, see it without the glazing, and then lead into the works that followed. But I thought I agree with you entirely because I think it gave a departure point for the other works that followed. And you could sort of see these relationships, but it, it freshened the conversation around de Kooning all over.
1: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast, live art's look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the LiveArt app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Laura Paulson, welcome to the Live Art, Intelligence podcast. I've got George O'Dell here with me today, and I was hoping we could talk a little bit about, uh, to start with, the David Sollinger collection that was sold uh, rather spectacularly at Sotheby's this November. It made about $141 million, but more, I think, significantly, every lot was sold. Uh, and it was a substantial number of lots, and they were a broad range of... Uh, of artists. And so later, I'm hoping we can go into some detail about the various uh, artists and how you approach some of those um sales but I, I wanted to take a step back and ask you uh, to give us a little bit of um, perspective I, I know that Solinger himself uh, died a number of years ago uh, but only recently did the heirs make the decision to uh, sell and you had to navigate a number of different uh, constraints market constraints uh, the composition of the the collection uh, and so forth so I was hoping we could start with you giving us a sort of overview of how you approach that puzzle?
0: Absolutely, and I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Um, I think just for clarification, um, David Solinger did die in 1996, and his second wife, Betty M. besh Sollinger, passed away in April of 2022. So at that point in time the collection would was coming to market and it was the estate tax uh, were due. and it was also a point where many of the promised gifts, especially to Cornell and the Whitney, were able to be activated, so it was a, a very interesting time. They'd been long, they'd been long promised, but would be uh, gifted upon her passing. So um, it was a multi pronged um, exercise in many ways, um, and the family had elected to worked really worked very well with various curators and others who had interest in the collection to um, organize a core group that would stay with stay together, that would um, be a collection in its own right, but also at the time when Betty um, Ann e. passed, there would be a a representation of the, enough of a representation of the collection to also, uh, support a story and a vision and narrative, and also, uh, also for estate tax purposes. So it was, um, you know, a, it was a thoughtful exercise over the years. And it's, I think something that many, many people face when they are confronted with the idea that something that they had been doing all their lives, of is collecting art quite because they loved it has suddenly become, um, almost not so much a burden but a, a very very complex um asset so um but we we were working with the group um that we that we had which was a spectacular group of works and what what really was interesting was a, i hate to say time capsule but i'll use that word because it really was representative about a very rich time in post-war america when collectors were coming of age and thinking about moving out of impressionism and the more and the modernist and the and impressionism and post-impressionism and looking at which of many of the Major collections of sort of the robber barons, if you will, have been you know old masters, etc. But suddenly they were seeing on our shores um, not only the development of the New York School, but also the European um, modernism, as well as the Informel and the um, um, uh, School of Paris. So David was um, very very interested in Artie, with himself was a um, an. I think an amateur painter, but he befriended um, wonderful dealers early on, people like Sam Kootz and Dan Kahnweiler and um, Pierre Matisse, and that kind of curiosity and interest in what was happening across both here and across the Atlantic really drove um, the acquisitions. And it was reflect it was re- really a reflection of how the world was moving. And as you know, uh, Sam Kootz was a big proponent of people like Mathieu and Soulages, um, um Schneider, Zawuki, who he saw as artists in tandem, and we saw similar trends in the Sydney Janis Gallery. He was also someone who David worked with quite closely. So it was, you know, very much for a young collector to be in Giacometti's studio or meeting Dubuffet in 1946 um, to see these viscous black paintings and these incredible sculptures in that studio, which was so, you know, tiny and, and 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 full of stuff if you will for a young collector it was a very i would have to say quite visionary and and at the same time he didn't feel like he was doing anything out of the ordinary because he was following you know something that inspired him so it's it's It was important to tell that full story. And I think what was important is that, um, particularly our partner at Sotheby's, because I was working also with Thomas Gibson, a London-based dealer who knew David, and we very much appreciated that Sotheby's saw this in its totality. And instead of moving all of the European or the French or the Machu and the Soulages into a sale in Paris, we wanted to represent really what was happening so that you were buying a Machu in 1951 and the glorious de Kooning collage, you know, six months later, And that's, really where the world was and we've also seen recently too uh, you know an appreciation for artists like soulage and met who haven't necessarily been at the forefront here but some of the some galleries in new york have been showing these these works and we've seen um and you know an international appreciation for their work and, and prices building so it made sense to t- continue to honor that moment as well as bring it forward now in a fresh way but also telling a story so it was that was important so i think those 23 works that comprise the evening sale um were re- really representative of that. Because there was a depth of du buffet, we elected to have two works. We elected to have a group of eight works sold in Paris in early December. And it was 100% sold as well. And we were, the Paris sale was low end was 1.8 million euros to 2.6 million euros. And it sold with hammer plus premium for 2.7 and 100% sold. And it gave us the, the, Ability to put an artist like Gottfried Honegger, who he had acquired at Martha Jackson Gallery early on, um, who was a Swiss artist, you know, with an eight to twelve estimate in an evening sale format with the re- with the other works of uh, of of Solinger, So I think what's important, it was important about Solinger is to embrace the totality of the collection and have reasonable estimates and, you know, good scholarship. And we were also blessed with an incredible archive. David, I think, kept every piece of paper um, from about 1943 on um, his correspondence with dealers and artists and books that were inscribed to him. And it was just, it was so wonderful to see the day-to-day life of a collector, but also of someone who was a very busy lawyer and building his career and how you you made time to do all to do all of this it was a you know it's, it's it's a lot of work actually but the the level of endearment and excitement that he expressed um back and forth with artists and to you know vera de silva maria Vera de silva dubuffet giacometti was it was spe- really special and so those archives will go to the archives of american art and cornell and um there i still have i must say about um 20 feet of files <laughs> in my apartment but it, they were just a revelation, and um, I personally always loved that material, but I think it added to the texture of the collection, and and for those who saw the catalog and the online material, it really gave you a sense of the importance of the art, the decision-making process, and a world that, you know, is has... Um, to some degree um, past has, has changed um, in terms of the art world. So
1: well it, it, it yeah. was a kind of peak moment of modernism. Yep. The 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 transatlantic global nature uh, of it and this confluence of all these different artists. I did think it was interesting when you go through at least the 74 or so lots that were sold here in, in New York, they're they're concentrated in a in a 20 year period, the whole of them really a 30 year period with just yep. like you know, handful uh, outside of that. So it really is this picture of the the, the mid century, and and with that comes somewhat the changing nature of both tastes and uh, uh, artist reputations. So you you had, as all collections do, a few works that were extraordinarily important and valuable, but also a lot of artists that were collected in depth that may not necessarily be, you know, at the top of people's uh list to today. And so I was curious about the decision. You you took a very interesting strategy. There was no global guarantee. And I don't think you took any third party guarantees before the, the the sale was I'm assuming that was intentional.
0: That was intentional and it was very much a decision with the Salinger family. Really we felt that you know, the freshness of the work, the reasonable estimates and, and and doing and really following the guidance of the experts and the level of interest, but also a robust marketing campaign really embracing the collection from the lowest value to the highest value works would really create a level of excitement. And it was so interesting because, and that proved true. Um, The idea was to also realize as as much of the proceeds as possible. And as you know, with guarantees and third parties, um, there is always an upside participation in after a guarantee. And um, we really felt that these works really, really had some potential. um, And even if they were a little bit outside of taste, whether it's Lanskoy or where Dubuffet sits in the current market, that these were exceptional works, and with conservative and appropriate estimates, that they would find their way, and that's always been my experience. I know not everybody can. Uh, certain certain situations need a guarantee; they need the idea of knowing that that there's going to be. Um, um, certain funds at the end of the story, but at the same time, um, in this particular case, I think it was really extremely helpful because it really stood out among the market and as something that was slightly unique with you know all the various with all the various other collections and things that have come in the last several years. There's that's been the criteria, and I think what was interesting for us was you know the, the de Kooning collage because where that sat. I mean, what was interesting was when we had visits to the apartment. Um, the overwhelming exclamation, I think this actually came from Ollie Barker, was that de Kooning because people had seen it in exhibition. Over the years, and most recently at the Royal Academy um, in the abstract Expressionist Exhibition, and it had just it had sort of singed itself in people's you know uh, psyches, and because it was such an extraordinary thing. But it was a very difficult work in which to position because is it a work on paper? Is it a painting? You know, just where does it sit? And it's really you so unique in terms of de Kooning's um, practice. Um, but it but it was so fresh, and I think the moments, the, t- the opportunities we had to show people. Without the glazing, you've never. He felt like you were literally in his studio, and it was so great too because it connected nicely to a telegram that David had sent to Kuni in uh, February of 1952. Because Kuni didn't have a telephone, his studio was at 84 Broadway, and they would. He had to send him a telegram to confirm that he was coming down for you know to a studio visit, whatever. And so that was an interesting time because he was there in February and bought the and bought collage in, in April, just a few months later. Likewise, when uh, he and Donald Blinken went to his studio in 1960 uh, when, when they uh, were able to buy this great de Koonie, the Whitney in the Whitney's permanent collection, one of the first to enter the collection, which is Door to the River. Um, they had to send a, send, a, send a similar telegram, and then all that worked out, and they went to Luchaus, which I'm probably dating myself because I think Luchaus was here when I first moved to New York, but it was such a great place, and um, and that's where they primarily went to lunch. Yeah, exactly. So, um, But those kind of things were really very helpful to, to just um, give give these works a context and a location, um, but again, with the De Kooning, it was a an estimate at eighteen to twenty five, um, and it was aligned with you know certain a few other works that had sold in that range. But it was um, it was still it was still something of a mystery for the market in terms of where where it sat. So we were pleased to see how it was received. I,
1: I thought that was a particularly interesting moment too because. In some weird, you know, time warp uh, ripple, w- there was a lot of deconing work on the market in that same se- season, and not just because the estate was also, for you know, their own tax issues having been resolved, were were selling uh, uh, three works, uh, which you know went for a substantial amount of money, and there were uh, some other, but there were works up and down, you know, the periods and uh, price spectrum. But the collage, maybe because of its... Kind of hard to categorize nature, but I think more just because it was so visually impactful, it really stood out as the kind of de Kooning of the season, and I think made made de Kooning more exciting for all of those other works. I mean, I, I I mean you can't measure this or, or prove it, but uh, and George, maybe you you can uh, back me up here, but it felt like it was the work that gave a halo of interest. I think the other the estate works surely would have sold no matter what, but it gave a broader halo to sort of interest in in de Kooning's work.
0: It was it became a Kind of departure point for the other works that were there. There were three at Sotheby's, and there was a um, an abstract painting um, also at Christie's, I think from the early from the mid '70s. And and for in somehow looking at collage, and it was fascinating because as part of the um, as part of the. Programming around the three works from the the de Kooning's uh, estate, um, Jenny Saville had agreed to give a talk at Sotheby's on Saturday Saturday morning. I think it was um, Saturday the twelfth, and um, she loves de Kooning's work. But she, I ran into her in Paris when we had the Salinger sale on view there, and she said, "There's something I have to see. It's this de collage. It's been my obsession." I have a postcard of it, a card of it in my studio, and originally the talk was to be about the three that she asked for it to be included, so everybody agreed. And in fact, it really was amazing for her to talk about that work, see it without the glazing, and then lead into the the works that followed from this 1969, 1979, and in the 1987 work, I guess, from the the state. But I thought, I agree with you entirely because I think it really kind of located, it gave a departure point for the other works that followed. And you could sort of see these relationships, but it it freshened the conversation around de Kooning all over.
2: Yeah. I I think in seeing that work in context, you are also able to see the the actual thought process in the later years of how paintings get made. And for me, without the glazing on it, being able to see the 1950s thumbtacks in it. Just the mediums that were available when it was made was so incredible in the kind of rich mental complexity of of the composition within that, even in its scale, just made it feel so much fresher or newer to the conversation, even if it's been seen before in relation to the other works which were coming out on the market. And I think the bitter participation during the sale kind of prove that that point that we're all saying.
0: What's so extraordinary is that work did not feel like it was seventy years old. And the fact that it had been conceived seventy years ago is just is just to me it 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 just it felt like a he'd painted it yesterday. I mean, frankly, I I mean it was it wasn't for the dated some text a little bit, but Mm -hmm. uh and, um, and I was really, it was, and it was uh, de Kooning's and it went to David. I mean, that was it, you know, and then mm-hmm. bought it from Sydney Janice in April 52. So it was, it was very, very special. And I, I have to say it was um, one of the high points of my career to, to have that. And I'm so glad to see it was well received and deservedly so
1: let's talk about some of the artists uh, other artists that he collected in depth i mean the list is is quite long um the the miroes did well especially interesting was a later miro uh, work that um, got bid very uh, high above uh, the the estimates, and, and yes, the estimates were conservative. But you know, relative to the other mirrors, this was the work that P- the the buyers, uh, the bidders were focusing uh, on. And I was just curious, you know, when you're confronted with that, I you know, I assume. You don't have full knowledge of what's going to strike people's interest and so you're putting out a group of works and you're trying to position them to bring in the the largest uh group but did you have any indication that that was going to be the work that people would fasten on
0: no we didn't actually and that was a very nice surprise and and i must say we were our everyone was delighted with everything but there was so much pre-sale, you know, excitement for the 1945 Miro. It's just painted on the armistice, and it was such a special picture um, and beautiful. And I, I thought it showed very well. It really translated. But we were expecting a little more competition there, and everyone's happy, of course. But we're pleasantly surprised to see the second picture have such traction and such, such demand. And I think it was a picture that you could sort of underestimate in many ways, but that palette and in particularly that one very perfect little Nero-esque figure with a sort of open mouth or an eye or was so beautifully articulated. And it just created a wonderful kind of um, counterpoint to that aqueous blue and the kind of painting that was throughout the, the, the rest of the composition and so we were we were thrilled that that was so well received and little 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 surprised that after all of the excitement around the uh the larger work that it hadn't it didn't carry on as much as we'd hoped but at the same time it obviously did very well and you know it's an artist too that who um, you, you overlook at relative prices across the board um there was a small picture in the Paley sale that did nicely i believe exactly um but again it's a, a taste and a Particular period that you know may not be as robust in people's minds as, let's say, Picasso, who becomes a definitive point of that, or Giacometti, uh, in terms of the post-war um, European experience. And so, so that so that was just fine. But we were thrilled that that did so well, actually. Um, and I think one of the other areas which was interesting um, was Leger, who. At a certain point in his career, because there was depth there, um, was they they did they did okay, but they slightly struggled. I would say, and again, everything sold. We were very realistic about that. But it's also another artist that has to be, you know, a great work from the early part of the century, um, or something really clear from the later part of the century, builders or whatever it may be. But sometimes these earlier still lives, especially since as we noticed, he actually made two versions of the one. Um, you know, these are these are they become a little more. Um, pedestrian for some people. And so I think the works that that David had were terrific, but again, it's slightly, slightly maybe outside, um, overall market taste. Um, yeah.
1: So, so you mentioned earlier about the timing with estate taxes, and I assume you have some leeway, it's, it doesn't have to get all done, you know, say in 2022, you, and you knew that the um, Paul Allen sale was uh, sort of barreling down over er- everything. Did you at all consider either waiting another season or, I mean, I know, you know, you discussed that you didn't want to disperse these things in diff- different places, but you must have had to sort of do a little uh, thinking of that as a uh, an option to to I- exclude it, right?
0: Yeah, we we saw about that but we we felt that you know the 23 evening sale works and the overall collection would remain its own entity within a larger scale of allen and allen was certainly was so 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 expansive in terms of its taste and and objects that you know that we were i think a very healthy sort of niche niche within all of that and knowing that our strategy would be without guarantees without third parties with conservative estimates and with really showing the eye of a real collector. I think people really appreciated that. And it's interesting, and Paul Allen had some magnificent things, there's no doubt about it, but someone who... I ran into who didn't even know we were involved, said, Paul Allen has amazing things, but you know you feel like it's just an extraordinary accumulation, but you walk into that room, you feel like you that's a real collector. And it made, gave me chills when someone said that because I kind of thought, well, mission accomplished. That's kind of what we'd hoped for.
1: Yeah. And I don't think that, that belittles Paul Allen in, in the least. I mean, I think these are two very different types of collecting. In fact, today, it may be much more that we have people of vast resources who choose to collect in a kind of you know, best of everything way versus someone who clearly, you know, lived among these artists and had relationships with with them and collected in depth for, for, from them. And the collection itself is probably greater than the sum of the parts, in the sense that, you know, it was an experience uh, for him and all. And I think that counterpoint is actually, you know, one of those rare experiences where you can sort of see these two two men in two different periods Very different, neither of them was poor, but very different financial resources and different ways of coming up with
0: it. The contrast was so interesting. The time capsule element
2: for the Hollander sale, right, that it was in context was with artists where Alan came to collecting very late and then took a very encyclopedic stance against it. I I guess the one takeaway from something you said earlier that I thought was interesting in both sales is these lower value items that got added into the sales for context reasons, you know, I think Alan ended with a, uh, a Bruce Nauman print at $3,000, obviously he made a lot yeah. more than that, but you know, these kinds of, you know, showing that collectors collect across all these different mediums. I thought that that was one, one part where the two storylines came together in a lot of ways or in sort of in the rear view and looking at the layouts of the auctions.
0: Well, the other thing that's interesting, I think, is important, and to all families when they're and, and situations when they're when they're faced with this, is is understanding that there needs to be, frankly, with you know within a certain amount of reason. But with Sollinger, um our partners at Sotheby's were very, very inclusive in understanding the need to show the whole story, which is also why we were really excited, very excited to show the um, pre-Columbian art because uh, David collected these works from the fifties forward from all the great dealers from Andre Emmerich. And in fact, Sotheby's has the Emmerich archives. And so, you know, all throughout the institute photographs of his home, these works were sitting alongside the artwork. So I was excited to actually have a group of them go to Paris for the preview, plus include them here and, t- you know, t- to form the um, low end of the pre-Columbian or Mesoamerican consignment was 74 thousand to one ten and it came in at 225 and and I just I very much appreciated the the experts at Sotheby's who really got very excited by this because they you know this is an area that can be complex in terms of selling and uh, provenance etc all of this was so so well documented and pure it was really very exciting <clears throat> and the I, fact I, that it lived so beautifully with the the art. Mm-hmm.
2: No, I thought the Mesoamerica pieces, especially because that's a kind of newish in the tri- tribal art collecting categories. You know, yeah. we've we've seen the the African African tribal art market explode, and kind of Mesoamerica and Native American coming kind of behind it, but quickly. You know, and it's it's something that's always been fascinating. And I remember I was walking around Sotheby's with one of my former colleagues and specialists there, and we were looking in the room with the art, and there were those two um, terracotta figures yeah and i thought i i'd bid on these i know nothing about what these are but the provenance the ownership of them and where where they were acquired from in the 50s you know that gave me all the security i kind of needed to get really excited about them and i love them in context i think they were just around the corner from the arps the lot one yeah. Arp, and they're mm-hmm. excellent and it was like where where are these coming up are they in the sale are they somewhere else i just thought it was that was such a great way of you know living with art living with objects you know these kinds of sales where even, Design gets mixed in, so you get the, as you said before, the, the whole story. I
0: thought that well, that, was that, that's really music well done. to my ears. Be- that's very, very much <laughs> music to my ears because, um, I, you know, I'm very detail oriented, and, and I personally felt that. That, that that aspect of it would be appreciated. And I, like you, I sort of took these for granted over the years when I'd see these things that works in the apartment and then brought into those bases with the art in that environment. They just they just became so beautiful. They look so fresh. Everything looks so contemporary. And I I thought to myself, I'll put a bit in. I got, I didn't even get a chance to. I thought maybe nobody would notice and this and that. But the couple that I really liked actually went much better than I thought. But um, it really, it was exciting actually. And I thought it was, so, it was just great to see these, these works being celebrated for what they are and that kind of insight um, that he had in 1951 and the letters from the various dealers i have this piece i'm coming to be in new york and this is uh, ted shemp who would you know put it in the back seat of his car and drive from cincinnati to new york and you know it's it's pretty it's very very nice actually but i'm glad you responded that way and i, I think it really added a sense of um a warmth
1: and insight to the collection. So it's it's been a big year for you. Uh, in the first half of the year, you finished off your uh, job advising on the Macklow uh, sale. In the second half, you worked on the Solinger collection. And you know, as we've just spent uh, twenty minutes discussing, that was was not a small operation. It, it, it sounds like you've been working on it sort of full stop since uh, you know the middle of the year to to the sale, and just now you know cleaning up with the the Dubuffets in in Paris. I mean, we've lived through an extraordinary time with the pandemic. You know, there's a lot going on in the w- world, but I presume there are other collectors' collections that uh, people are consulting with with you. As you look forward to 23 and 24, how are you viewing both the market and The kinds of strategies you would have in general, how you thinking about the the market in terms of someone coming to you with another significant collection.
0: Well, um, before I go there, I would just like to say I think what has been so interesting with between Maclow and Paul Allen, uh, Paley to some degree, and uh, Solinger is to it really has to to me uh, reinforced the fact that there is still great I mean great interest in important. Uh, historical blue chip art and and again it doesn't have to be value driven because the 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 art sculpture for example did extremely well in solinger and it was just a beautiful thing not to mention there's that fabulous letter in her best english from arp's wife talking to you know various things but i think it it was you know um One other thing I want to mention, actually, I was so happy to see that beautiful black calder that did so well in Solinger, And it was, it was, it was lived within the collection and and in the installation just as it did, which is a a wonderful counterpoint to so many things. And it certainly was a very, very strong price um, against where uh, similar black uh, mobiles had been, but just to that. So I think, I think it, it means it bodes well for, other estates and collections coming forward because um, there is an interest definitely in the collector's eye. Um, I think new collectors appreciate the idea of a, a provenance they can understand, the validation of some, you know, whether it was a, a huge name or someone like Sollinger who would really not been known, um, the works have been sort of, you know, after a certain point really hadn't been seen by many people, Uh, his peer peer group who used to visit the collection or the museum groups, you know, shifted. Um, So there was, it wasn't as well known. Um, But I think when you are able to do like what we have did and what we did with Maklo is to show these works um, with scholarship, with, uh, you know, as much of a context as possible, depending on the situation, um, it really does bode well for good results. And um, I think it's interesting. There's always that balance. Well, could we, could we have done something privately? There had been people who wanted to come forward with the de Kooning, for example. But also, you know, there needs to be a level of transparency, certainly when you're facing estate tax issues. Um, and and also a strategy, because that was such an important work to have in the collection to, to literally anchor the collection and you build out from around it with the other works, um, because it was such a remarkable work. So, and re- really one of the punctuation p- points of the eye of you know and the passion of someone like Solinger to like age 45 to see the the, va- the, vir- the virtue the value the beauty and the, the the joy of living with a work like that forever um and so i think I think that is one thing I will say and i i don't think so much of it's going to change I think um I think um really going forward my, our our personal strategies are always to really do as um to, uh, to support the collection at every level you can, whether it's through scholarship, through catalogs, through marketing promotion, it's really important to embrace a collection, even with all of its um, idiosyncrasies, to creative collectors' eye so that everything can be maximized even at the lower value, at the lower value levels. Which is very important to families, and um, and also because they you want to have it done. You don't need leftovers. You just you know that's it's important to to look at that in a holistic way and make it work and and and, how, and, 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 how, ad, and advocate. You know
1: how, how important are those sentimental objects to families in in the results part of it. I mean, there are always going to be works that have uh, individual importance to members of the family that need to be sold. Do they really care whether it gets a good price? Is it more about it being featured in some way? Or is it just, hey, there's a lot to move, I leave it to you, sort of, you know, I'll stay
0: out of it. It, 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 it runs the full spectrum of emotions. Uh, some are very practical and just know that it has to happen. Um, but I think more often than not, um, that there's an incredible appreciation for Telling the story and creating something that can be left, whether a great catalog, uh, the video clips, whatever is, is, a, is a as a legacy. Uh, there are grandchildren, there are great grandchildren, and sometimes that's important to a family. And often families have all of this material, all this archival material. They're living with this art, but nobody has taken the time to do to to document or organize it. And um, in 2002, Cornell did an exhibition of um, many things from the Solinger collection. Um, you know, that were given. Are, that are going to be uh, that will, are there now that have been gifted and also other things outside the collection but it was you know it wasn't in its same totality as this and um and i think this this has been important and i've heard that from many of the families i've worked with is that if you hadn't been for this we wouldn't have had a record we wouldn't have had something and it was very important so um while i know everyone has moved away from print catalogs but for these special collections it's a very important thing to do and i know when when um, which is a different situation, obviously, but it had been such a dearth of uh, material, especially because of the pandemic. When the first Maclow catalog came out, I can't tell you how many people said, oh, "I'm so exciting to receive a catalog." You know, I mean, first there was a point where there wasn't exciting because you received ten thousand, you know, New York telephone books <laughs> the size of a New York Manhattan uh, five borough telephone book in one doorstop, but um, at the same time, um, but it was, you know, it did mean something. So I think there's always a balance, but I think with these collections, it's something that people like to sit down and leaf through and read and absorb um, more often than not. So... um,
1: Your mention of the Macloz sale makes this is an odd question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I mean, I think one, as you just said, there's a certain validation of these events where you know, in the Macloz case, the 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 you know they were both present to see it sold. We talked a lot about um, the collection itself. There was a real kind of sense of recognition of a lifetime of collecting in those two sales, Um, and the money was more just a, a way of reinforcing that that then the the up being the focal point. um, Do you think more people would be inclined to sort of sell their collections while they're still there to Witten? this is there some you know uh a gratification value for collectors in that or is this really just you know something for the families to,
2: to um
0: i think it, it all depends on your circumstances to be very honest honest with you um to be honest with you we're uh, uh we're working on something now which is in that context where someone is and has the ability to sell in their lifetime because they would very much like to um continue their charitable um and philanthropic activities, and they want to be here to do it. And I don't know if you remember years and years ago when I had um, the Jonas, it was a Jewish communal fund, JCF, and it was the Jonas family. And whether Donald Jonas, who just passed away, had decided much to his wife's chagrin that they would like to sell the majority of the collection then so they could continue with these nursing and veterans. I mean, they did phenomenal things. And so they were able to devise a, a devise a, a a mechanism and a structure so that that would be something that would be possible and it was very exciting and i think this one project in fact we're actually working on two projects which are exactly the same same idea um so once that happens maybe we can follow up <laughs> um sure. but it's but it but but it people but that and that's important because they they want the they those who are very active and they'd like to see the participation they've lived with the art they can Go on with their lives, and they feel like this would be a great time to take advantage of a strong market, um, the potential of writing a very good strong narrative, and taking advantage of the moment, and um, and and you know, and using this as um, you know an important chapter in their lives um, while they can still be be participating. So
2: it's interesting because it moves it moves beyond the traditional you know debt, divorce, and death commentary mm-hmm. around why these things come for sale, and actually lend some more sort of philanthropic bent to it, which I think, in a way, it can also drive interest from the bidding you know, public, even if it's not, you know, if we're taking stewardship out of, you know, what happens to these pictures next, and it's all about monetary gain for whatever comes next. You know, I think that 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 psychology built back into it certainly has to be a driver the same way that low estimates are a psychological driver to get more bids in. So I think that that's a certain certainly interesting way of handling a, a collection before it you know quote unquote comes to term.
0: Exactly. Um, that's well said. And I think I think in the two two cases that we're, we're in we're working on it as we speak, um, that's very much about part of um, wanting to monetize the art while they can and and, and tell the story and, and take advantage of a take advantage of a you know global vehicle like an international auction house to be able to. To tell that story and do things, and so that's it's it, to sell it privately and talk about it is a whole different scenario. And I think also this satisfies the transparency issue for many of um, these endeavors, which you know need to be, especially as the funds are going to various philanthropic organizations. So it's 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 inter- it's really interesting. Um, so it's a it's a contrast someone like David Solinger was incredibly generous in his lifetime when Alfred Barden wanted to buy that de Kooning from the first show at the Egan Gallery in 51. He couldn't raise the money and David and his wife agreed to support the, the acquisition. Um, same with, you know, and, and the many things that he gave institutions, but they were always very generous along the way, um, which is also, you know, part of their, you know, part of that legacy as well, which is, you know, nice to see um, and I think there's a lot of generosity. I mean, in institutions um, and, and collectors these days, there's no doubt about it. Um, but it was a smaller world then, and less and less magnanimous in terms of the recognition one would have. You know. Okay.
1: So, so final question. Just going back to strong market you just mentioned. You you can see that continuing in the next few years.
0: I I think that there's going to be a slight. My personally, I feel that um, things guarantees. And that kind of, um, you know, broad brush guarantees that have been um, given throughout all three auction houses. I think some of that, I would say, would probably start to pull back a little bit. Um, I think overall, you know, I think everyone fared decently. um, But at the same time, I think the sense I'm feeling just from our various forays is that um, there's a little more caution, slightly more conservative, particularly about making any decisions right now, um, to see where the world goes. Um, so I, I do think people feel like it will be harder to, to a little more difficult to get material. Um, and at the same time, I think there's a little bit of weariness of having a sale that is literally all 3rd party. Yes, there's a few that go above, but it's it's like private sales in public. Um, and it just and that's why something like Solinger, when it's 23, you know, beautiful little lots, was exciting because it you, you felt like there was a real market. And I'm not saying others aren't, but you know, the, the necessity of of business these days requires often these these kind of um, um, you know scenarios. But I think there's a little fatigue in that, and I think also on the side of the business side the auction houses that they're looking at those sort of uh business models um you know yeah. more carefully um and i because if especially if you're it's your own money and how you know how how deep is the third-party pool I mean it's yep. it's you know it's everybody's looking a little more closely
1: look there's no denying that the theater is important to the marketplace and you have to cast it in the right way and uh, everything has its pendulum swings and it certainly felt like we've gotten to one extreme uh in the past so there was as you pointed out both your sale but also there was a, a fair amount of excitement in this la- last season but yes it, it it certainly seems like everyone's approach to going forward is about being cautious, not taking anything for granted, but not also feeling like, Everyone's gone away. I guess that's no, what no. I getting I, at yeah, I, I don't
0: think I don't think that at all. I think the right thing, you know, as we saw, um, as we saw the the right thing. There's there's depth of there's depth of demand. Um, the rarity of so many of these works that have um, were up in this last season um, across the board were you know inspirational to some extraordinary prices and you know and very lucky collectors to who who acquired them. What I think is interesting with someone like Solinger is because the price points weren't 50 million and above, but it's, you know, anything from five to, you know, $40 million is, it's, it's real money and no doubt about it, but it was a fluidity in that kind of, that aspect of the market, you know, the, the Mondrian, that was a wonderful uh, picture as well. I was thinking of some of the great things that were up besides all those masterpieces of Paul Allen, but um but in that range, there's still, I think, um, confidence. And um, and when the, the work is right, and you have it in that that particular period, that's great. When you start to get to the hundred million range, the eighty to hundred, we saw that with Maclo, you know, with the Rothko the Rothco, and the Giacometti, those are that's you know, those are those are very high points of um, yep. departure. And um, so it's it's that 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 may be coming down a bit, but great things anywhere else below, I think, still manage to have a good market.
1: And I should add, I mean, I think one of the things when we see a lot of those private sales in public, that is sometimes a product of if everyone knows what a price is and pretty much agrees on a price it's very hard to the you know and and the guarantor gets to pretty much close to that price it's very hard to get other people just to to take a shot at it that doesn't mean that it's not the right price for it it just means you know it was relatively easy
2: it's it's the retail you've hit the retail right you know we we right. talked about this on a couple looking at some uh, some artists where the estimates have now matched the market and the sort of bids over the low have shrunk considerably from years past because the price, expo- the price discovery has ended now, and we've kind yeah. of got a static state market. My uh, my question, I think, going back, uh, looking into next year, and, and as we roll forward with collections, you know, there was kind of a burst of Abex collections that came onto the market. Now we're getting more into the '60s and '70s, and you you had said about, you know, I think Soulage is obviously there's a few different drivers there trying to get that market out of France and into a global setting. You know, Metu maybe to a, a, a different level, but similar. Exactly. And, yeah. I wa- and do you feel that some of these single owner sales are going to bring to light artists in that vernacular? And put them into you know the New York context and out of the London context, or you know bring new names into the evening sale context that aren't just you know twenty eight year olds with fresh MFAs making seven figures, but kind of rediscovery rediscovery <laughs> moments,
0: right? Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Um, no, I, I I you know I, I think I think in the context of something like Solange, although interesting enough, there had been some amazing prices um, for both Soulage and Machu um, in the Hong Kong sales, as well right. as, um, I was at $14 million price that I think Sotheby's had on one, a, the red the one, red one yeah, right? the red, red one, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and those, you know, that was a, you know, it was a fabulous picture. I mean, it really was, it was incredibly mm-hmm. dynamic, the scale, the color. So within, you know, like with all artists within, within their whole practice, there, there are these touch points that will have that kind of result. And then there are the more Cotodian works that will continue to do well. And we were amazed to see how well the Soulage did. I thought it was a wonderful picture this light from behind, Um, but it was smaller in scale, um, but it, certainly showed an interest in his market and also within that a global awareness of um, appreciation for the full spectrum of his, his work and career. So the, the later works tend to be more monochromatic, with, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of incising uh, as opposed to these sort of push-pull and um and contrast that you would see from like works in the 50s. So um it was it was fascinating. So I but to answer your question, I think it does open open things up because you've, you've created a validation, you know, for this market. Um, the Big Red Mathew was great. I mean, there was, in addition to the photo we have with him in the picture, it was also featured in Art News. It was advertised. Um, uh, it was the image they used for the review. You know, there are all kinds of, I have a copy of the magazine from 51. And, you know, it's interesting that this is a work that, you know, from, from the beginning, was seen as um, somewhat iconic or emblematic of his work and the exhibition at Coots at the time. So it was mm-hmm. it was great. And I think that, that adds to its value. But will there be an overall embrace uh, you know embrace? I mean look at Zawu Key's work. I mean that's also mm-hmm. something it has its a market obviously in Asia, but it's mm-hmm. translated even further. Um, and some of these works are extremely beautiful.
1: Just go back to the abstraction element of this because I I do think that there does seem to be a renewed interest in abstraction Coming from lots of different uh, uh, points. And that was one of the reasons the de Kooning was suddenly so interesting. It was like, you know, there's all this interest in abstraction. And then we have a bunch of de Koonings on the market from very different phases of uh, uh, his career. We had a very strong Joan Mitchell price for, you know, a later work. Um, you know, that so that there the, the does seem to be a lot of interest in people trying to sort of rethink their way through abstraction.
0: I, I agree. And I think there's been such a, not a push, but there's been just, a, a very strong level of production in figurative work um, and nothing. there's nothing obviously wrong with that. Um, we sort of moved away from the historical as well as a very contemporary um, you know, understanding of abstraction I think it's just interesting to an artist like um, Jacqueline Humphreys, who has been a painter for 35 years, and she's enjoying a certain recognition now with, you know, beautiful abstract painting. We can talk about Humphreys
2: all day long Ah. if you want. I love Jacqueline Humphreys. I've collected her work. Um, I think she needs to be put in the the same vernacular, or like if if Humphreys was in context with Johns about the visual language of the emoticon, like I think yeah we'd have a whole nother understanding from an academic standpoint of what she's about. Um I thought the but painting see, that Sunday soul could have done much ba- even better than it did. You know, that's sh- that should have been a million dollar picture.
0: I, I would I agree with you. I think she has a terrific picture. I've also an um, an artist that's a is Stanley Whitney and there's been, you know, he's been a, his 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 language is, is is all about abstraction and color and to see and you know a, a new recognition of his work um and the, the a, and how needed.
1: i mean it's been a, it's been a year of just solid uh, maybe a year and a half of one work after another uh, again up and down the pi- price spectrum different sorts of works and considering you know that his work is a- endless variations on a, a fairly rigorous theme it shows just how much demand there is out there for his work
0: Exactly and also just the, the idea of abstract painting. I mean I think it's something that we you know we take for we sort of take for granted and I my career started at McKee Gallery in 1981 and it was just you know not even 10 years after Philip Gustin had broken out into figuration and he was seen as a hero of a generation. Um, there was the exhibition at the Royal Academy.
1: The David Ampham one, the recent one? No, the, no, no, or, no, oh, no. This is
0: 19, it was um, the Royal, Norman Rosenthal, um, new, new, oh. spirit Painting, new, new Spirit and Painting, New Spirit of Painting. It was anchored by Gustin and then it was Susan Rothenberg and I think Gillian Schnabel and maybe Leon Kossoff. Um, but it was it was a really interesting exhibition and it I think it was with Murray. but It was, it was abstraction and figuration but it was a New Spirit in Painting but primarily about figuration. Um, I think Boslitz might've been in the show. Um, but even then looking at those, those artists, the abstraction, the figuration was abstract in many ways. It wasn't literal. And it was a very different thing than looking at someone like Philip Pearlstein or something, which is, a, you know, we, we're going to have to go to that or, or Eric Fischel or something, but it, it was, a, yeah. but it was giving license to going back to some figurative work. But even then it had, um, a, you know, a, a dependency on virtuoso brushwork and palette. And it was, the, it was different than simply looking at quote unquote figuration. Um, Figuration with a narrative or storytelling it was that I think that's where I'm thinking about the abstraction. It was it was different so um, I think this is all very good in that sense, um, opening boundaries and giving people confidence to to artists' confidence to to pursue that aspect of their work. All
1: right. Well, I don't want to, I could go on forever uh, uh, in this vein, especially since you've raised the Philip Perlstein uh, uh, specter, but I will leave that for yet another podcast where we'll talk about all of these things. So uh, George, uh, thank you for joining me, but Laura, it's been a, a real pleasure. Well, yeah. thank you very much,
0: very me. much enjoyed
1: it. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the Live Art app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence podcast. We're looking forward to it.